Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. I need to sneeze. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. My name is Mika. (laughs) And this is a music history podcast where I'm trying to teach Mika music history. And I'm just trying to sneeze. Happy spring. Happy spring. Allergies are the worst. You know what's not the worst? Our cat's butt on your computer. Yeah, that's. I mean, I don't love it. It's not the worst. <laughs> it's cute. He wants to be a part of things. Yeah. So, we're happy to be doing another episode this week. We missed last week. I don't know. We were busy. Yeah, we were out of town. Yeah. So we couldn't do it. Yeah. And then Mika will be busy for the next like 10 days starting this weekend. Yeah. So we probably won't have one for another week, maybe two weeks. We'll see what happens. So this might be the last one you get for a while. Probably just (laughs) enjoy it. Yeah. One or two. two We'll see. Because then after I'm after I'm done being busy, I took a week of PTO for us to go out of town and then we're not going out of town. So we'll just record seven. I'm going to be so bored. (laughs) Well, then you can help me write some of these then. I don't want to do that. I'm behind on that. I don't want to do that. All right. I well, don't, don't want to do that. What Do, do you want to do Mika as the host now? Mika is the host. Yeah. I liked that one. <laughs> okay. Keeping that one? Keeping that one. Uh, Dude, Mighty Patches. Did you notice that I wore a random piece of something on my face? For like the past few nights. No. That means they're really invisible. I do not have the clearest skin. And my friend recommended these little like hydrocolloid patches that you put over um, over a pimple. And it's supposed to like draw out the gunk. And it did. I'm cool. obsessed. I had a really, really bad breakout. And the stuff that I normally put on it which i do also really like i can't remember what brand it is i can never remember i don't know well it's it's uh crap benzoyl peroxide it's a it's a benzoyl peroxide um and normally that works really well but it wasn't cutting it and then i put those patches on it and it was like flat Within a few days. So highly recommend. And you can wear them under your masks. So like (laughs) no one knows that you have a little acne patch on. I know that they've been like kind of popular. But I just didn't expect them to work. And they did. So I'm really excited about that. Is that it? That your only plug? Yeah, it's the only new thing that I have. I think. Oh, I do remember. Oh, okay. It's, it's La Roche Posay. It's like Effaclear, Effaclar duo. I don't know. It's the stuff that we had to go to Ulta to get when we were visiting your parents. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. And and now my skin doesn't look as bad because before it was bad and and painful and and, and gross. And the the acne patches are gross, but in like the 
cool kind of way, you know? No. <laughs> but you don't get that? Like it pulling out the toxins kind of way? Yeah. Oh, well, all right. Okay, is that the end? Mika no longer the host now? Mika's no longer the host now. Good luck to everyone and all of your skin concerns. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to get into music history. First, follow us on social media, even though we do literally nothing there. Hey, sometimes I post TikToks. I don't think you have in over a month. Well, that just means <laughs> I need to post more TikToks. We have done very little on there, but you will know when we post an episode if you follow us on there. And also, you can leave us ratings and reviews and all that fun stuff. You can let us know things we get wrong, things you'd like to see us do differently. You know, whatever. That's the way to talk to us. So Tips do it on for there. how to make our, our stuff sound better. Yes. Or our skin clear, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay. So, the last time we did an episode, do you remember what we talked about? I said it right before we started recording this episode. You did? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> that, whoa. I had headphones <laughs> That's in. That's weird. I had, hey. You listened to me for an hour when we talked about this last episode. That was a long time ago. It's bluegrass. No, we, we are talking about bluegrass now. Did we already talk about bluegrass? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not very memorable, apparently. We had okay, a whole on. episode on bluegrass. I remember us doing this now, but I definitely thought that this was going to be our first bluegrass episode. Nope. Now we're talking about like the most important guy in bluegrass. Yeah, but there was, another, there was another important guy. Yeah, Earl Scruggs. Yeah. But we talked about him a lot last episode. Okay. This episode is Bill Monroe, who's probably even more important. Okay. I have to go get my chicken yes. out of the oven. Yes, you do. Mika is a hoss now. No, you're not. Put <laughs> oil over a chicken breast and and seasoning and bake it in the oven for 22 minutes. And it's very yummy. But you have to use a meat thermometer so that you don't overcook it because then it's bad. So we talked about bluegrass. I'm assuming you don't really remember anything about it other than Earl. Um, no. Um... Banjo heavy. Yeah. Banjo heavy, very acoustic, deals a lot with group vocal, well, kind of a lot with group harmonizing in the vocals a little bit. Very based around rural Appalachian Mountain regions. We also talked a bit about Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys in the last episode. But we're today we're going to talk about him even more. He is, in my opinion, the single most important figure, maybe besides Earl Scruggs, in the history of bluegrass. Is it just your opinion? Well, it's most people's opinion. So but you like, just like bandwagoned on top of other people's opinion? Yeah, because I don't really know or care about bluegrass, so <laughs> might as well let someone else form my <laughs> opinions for me. But, I mean, you were saying that it sounds like Earl Scruggs should be the father of it, so now we're going to tell. Well, yeah, but you were going to ask me. Which one I thought was the father of bluegrass, and now I don't remember anything about Earl Scruggs, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I guess it'll be Bill Monroe. 
I'm not just going to like follow what everyone else thinks. Need to form my own opinions. Okay. I have to go back and listen to the last episode. Okay. I don't think you'll do that, but okay. I might. <laughs> was it funny? Eh, it wasn't the best. Oh. It wasn't our best episode. I think we were both tired. Well, never mind. Well, regardless, for a while, Bill Monroe and his band was the only band even playing the genre of music. Wasn't Earl Scruggs in the band? Yes, but about seven years after it started. Okay. Earl Scruggs kind of revolutionized it and revolutionized the way of playing the banjo that pretty much all bluegrass people do now. Mm, That's right, that's right. But he, yeah, he joined the band later on. He, uh, Bill Monroe developed and created most of this type of sound. And I'm just assuming, like, besides what you remember, which is probably nothing from last episode. Hey, I already told you what I remember. I'm assuming you don't really remember anything about or know anything about Bill Monroe outside of that. Not at all. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go track my chicken. <laughs> Bill Monroe was born on his family's farm in Rosine or Rosine. I don't know. Something, about, something like that. Kentucky on September 13th, 1911, as the youngest of eight children. That's a lot of kiddos. His family was pretty musical, so he grew up playing and singing with his siblings and his mom. But because he was the youngest and the other instruments were already taken, he was forced (laughs) to play the mandolin because no one else wanted to play it. That's hilarious that they can't just play the same instrument. He has to pick something different. Yep, and apparently his brothers told him to remove four of the eight strings so he wouldn't play too loudly. (laughs) I didn't realize that was about volume. I don't know. I thought it was kind of like a guitar and it was like different. Yeah, it probably is. I don't know. I have no idea how a mandolin works. Okay. I mean, maybe they didn't either. (laughs) Bill was also born cross-eyed, which affected his vision until it was corrected when he was a teenager. Oh. But that often meant he was ridiculed at school. Yeah. At 11, he left school to become a laborer full-time. That's not okay. <laughs> that's like, how it was what? back then. No, but that's not okay. We're just going to acknowledge that that's yeah, not, not okay. okay. I mean, that's how it was in the rural communities. Got to get food. But unfortunately, his parents... What about all the other seven children? They probably were also laborers. How are they not making enough money? It's probably less about money and more about like growing the things you eat kind of thing. But I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea what it was. Goodness. He probably also thought like around there education didn't really matter for all that much because everyone just was laborers. So he's probably like, I don't, I don't care about this. It doesn't matter. And left to work because that's what his life was. Goodness. Unfortunately, his parents died when he was 17, leaving him orphaned. That's okay. He was a man at 11, so. <laughs> His siblings slowly started to leave the farm and move to different areas for better job opportunities. So Bill spent a bit bouncing around between aunts and uncles, but eventually settled with the uncle who had to have the coolest name out of all of them. Pendleton Vandiver. <laughs> all right. Great name, Pendleton. Pendleton was a great fiddler. And Bill would accompany him when he played at a few different school dances and things like that. He sometimes joined in with the band, playing primarily guitar. During this time, he also met a blues guitarist named Arnold Schultz, who became a massive influence on his play style. When he was 18, 
Bill moved to East Chicago, Indiana, where two of his brothers had found work at an oil refinery. There's a Chicago, Indiana? Well, East Chicago, Indiana. I don't know. It's another little city. Is Indiana east of Illinois? I think it is. Actually, no. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because you drive through Gary, Indiana to get to Chicago from here. East Chicago. (laughs) So Bill took a job at the same oil refinery, but kept playing in a country string band with his brothers at night. They played a few different local radio programs and barn dances, but weren't really doing anything major for a few years. So one of the brothers decided to quit the band in 1934. Unfortunately for him, that was right before they got a sponsorship opportunity with the Texas Crystals Company, which was a company that made laxatives. All right. So Bill and the other brother who was still in the band. What? What'd they do? Do a laxative jingle? No, like they sponsored the band. So like they paid for the band to like travel around. So they would be like. Why? I mean, it's the same way like you sponsor a TV show. Like they would. When the band would play, they would have, like, <laughs> advertisements for this company. For laxatives? Yeah. I mean, that's like that's Bing funny. Crosby was, like, the... I forgot what he... Cigars, maybe? He had a big cigar sponsorship. Well, that makes sense. And then we had the one guy, the Light Crust Doughboys. Oh, my God. <laughs> I forgot about them? them. Oh, no. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. But anyway. But for laxatives. Well, the Texas Crystals Company sounds better than just laxatives. Yeah, it sounds like meth. Yeah. So Bill and the other brother still in the band named Charlie continued on as the Monroe Brothers. The brothers had several radio spots in Iowa, Nebraska, Indiana, and the Carolinas. By this point, with the sponsorships and radio opportunities, they felt comfortable enough to leave their day jobs and focus on playing full-time. So, good for them. Things are going well for him. You have something to say? No. Okay, seemed like you did. I'm this just r- ready. This radio... I'm just ready to go. <laughs> I'm just ready to comment whenever I have a comment. Okay, go good. ahead. This I don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> Turn off your mic. <laughs> this radio airtime also got them the interest of some labels, but they were f- at first a little bit reluctant to sign a label contract. But they eventually... Why? They hopped on to a freaking <laughs> laxative sponsorship. Yeah, a label is going to control them a lot more than a laxative company. I don't know. Laxatives will control... It depended on laxatives. They were eventually convinced to sign with RCA Victor and had their first recording session in 1936. One of the songs called what would you give in exchange became a minor hit and they recorded something like 60 songs in two years for the label. What would you give in exchange for? Well, we're about to find out because here's what would you give in exchange? Brother Lafon, I guess that's what would you give in exchange for your soul. Risking your soul for the things that decay Probably a contact bar still. What would you give any chain for your soul? What would you give any chain? What would right, you that's what would you give in exchange by the Monroe Brothers. This isn't bluegrass yet. 
Yeah. This it's not. is just country. I was going to say, this is pretty lame. But through this period, they did start to develop something of a unique sound. They relied heavily on Bill's mandolin playing, which wasn't common in country songs, and they had a clearly recognizable, higher-pitched vocal performance. It wasn't quite bluegrass yet, but they were clearly developing something a little bit different than what everyone else was doing at this time. I still am stuck on how, like, hardcore of a topic that is like what would you give in exchange for your soul and the song was so lame (laughs) like that's like a badass song and it and they just like didn't get there i doubt they wrote it that was probably some old gospel song or something well through this period they started to uh, i already read that in 1938 the brothers decided to go their separate ways charlie monroe would form a band called the kentucky partners Partners with a D. No. P-A-R-D-N-E-R-S. No. Which focused on traditional country western music. But Bill had another idea. He decided he wanted to build a band that merged traditional string music with more of a blues sound and really challenged the musicians with its complexity. I honestly like the idea of bluegrass. Like I'm sold. Yeah. It's just the country twang that I'm like, mm, <laughs> well, do that we was, have to? That was his idea. He wanted to challenge those musicians a little bit. I like it. So, with this idea in mind, to create this music that would actually challenge the musicians a little bit, Bill went to Atlanta and formed the first version of the Bluegrass Boys, with a bassist, a fiddler, and a guitarist. They found some local success and performed on a radio program a few times, but the real big time came when Bill auditioned and was accepted to the Grand Ole Opry in 1939. How old is Grand Ole Opry? I think this was maybe 20s was when it started. This was pretty early, I think. But that was the pinnacle of success for a country musician. I think it still is, but I think there's like, I don't know. I think it still has that kind of reputation, even if it isn't as big as some of the arenas some of these people are playing in. 1925. Okay, so yeah, this was 14 years after the start. Through the start of the 40s, Bill was really playing around with the sound of his band. He added an accordion at one point, but that was quickly dropped. He added a banjo player in 1942, but that player wasn't really all that great, and he played a kind of primitive style that was rarely featured in solos. You could hear that when he was trying to come up with... Oh, sorry. You could hear that Bill was trying to come up with something different, but hadn't quite figured out just what it was yet. The early 40s were kind of transitional years between traditional string bands and bluegrass. So here's a song that was recorded in 1942 called Orange Blossom Special. Ooh, why does that sound sexual? It sounds like something that would be repeated. Wow. Oh, <laughs> goodness. So it's a little bit faster, more complex. It's a lot faster. Traditional country music. 
This makes me want to run, but like not in a good way. Well, you said during the last episode that bluegrass made you want to run in a good way. So I guess we're almost there. <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah, because you were like, doesn't this just make you want to run? And I was like, yeah, away from whoever's playing. <laughs> Well, that's Orange yeah, Blossom Special. Getting a little, getting a little closer to bluegrass. I it, do not like it. Okay. It was bad. In 1944, Earl Scruggs and Lester Flat joined the Bluegrass Boys, which would round out the classic lineup and see the most success for Bill. We talked about Earl a lot in the last episode and how influential his banjo playing was. So go back and listen to that episode if you don't really remember Earl Scruggs because he was a big in that one. Remember, I don't remember it. But this this classic lineup starting in 1944 was when the bluegrass sound really started to take shape, and it was also when Bill and his band started to get some national attention instead of just local radio shows and stuff. This lineup also cemented the classic bluegrass five piece that bluegrass is really known for today: steel string guitar mandolin, fiddle, banjo, and bass. All acoustic string instruments. I like that. I think that's cool. Yep. I think it's cool that we have so many different like types of string bands. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, strings can make a lot of different sounds, which is cool. This group used really fast tempos, complex vocal harmony. Well, complex vocal harmonies. They're not doo-wop, but they're doing something. <laughs> And impressive instrument solos, which led to them eventually being called the original bluegrass band. Because they were the first to combine all of those elements and create what is now known as bluegrass. Like those are the essential elements of what makes bluegrass bluegrass. And they were kind of the first people to really do it. To do bluegrass? In the bluegrass style of bluegrass? (laughs) Yes. Oh. Bluegrass. They recorded 28 songs... I'm making fun of you. I'm aware. Okay. They recorded 28 songs for Columbia between 1946 and 1947. Almost all of them went on to become classics of the genre, including what is probably Bill's most famous song, Blue Moon of Kentucky, which was later covered by Elvis and a whole bunch of other people. Here is Blue Moon of Kentucky. Respect where respect is due, <laughs> but I mean, that was massively popular for the people who liked that kind of stuff. So he was on to something. Yeah. 
the Bluegrass Boys became one of the biggest acts in country music. They would travel all over and play in a large tent that they set up themselves. <laughs> Their shows also featured other attractions, like Bill's baseball team, that would play the local baseball team wherever they went. That's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> it was like just a whole little, little country fair they would set up every time they played a city, which was cool. I like that idea. It's great. That's kind of how growing up in Bristol, that's kind of how NASCAR was. Like whenever the race came, it was like a whole weekend. They had booze. They had like all these things. Like the it actual. It doesn't matter what else you have so long as you have booze. That's true. The <laughs> actual, like the actual NASCAR race was not very long in one day, but like the whole race weekend was this whole big fair thing. That's what I imagine when I think about this. They had several top 20 hits during this time and were on top of the world, or at least their little portion of the music world. But then things hit a little bit of a rocky patch when Earl Scruggs and Lester Flats, the two guys who arguably made the bluegrass sound what it was, left to form their own group. Dun, dun, dun. This led to a period of stagnation for Bill. He left Columbia Records in 1949 because he was angry that they signed the Stanley Brothers, who was a group that he considered to be just ripping off his sound. So he went and he signed with Decca instead. In 1950, a year later, Decca tried to convince him to experiment with more mainstream sounds, and he even cut a few records featuring an electric guitar before quickly going back to his string band style. I would be interested to hear bluegrass, but with an electric guitar. I don't... You could argue that that wouldn't be bluegrass then. Because bluegrass is acoustic string instruments. Okay. (laughs) But this period of stagnation developed into what is considered the golden age of Bill's career. He changed up the bluegrass boys and gave it a new style, one that is known as the high lonesome version of the group. Oh, it gets more lonesome? (laughs) Yes. He met Jimmy Martin, who was a guitarist who became a standout vocalist for the group. He signed a few new musicians, and this group created several more bluegrass standards, including one of his best songs, named after his uncle he lived with, called Uncle Pin. Do you remember his uncle? Yeah, yeah. Pendleton? Really, yeah. Here is Uncle Pin. You'll see if it's better than the old ones. It looks like they're just singing to one Now he's singing to me and I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Can't understand a word they're saying, but it's it's a funky little too. Oh, he's he's just like giving the eyebrow. Not quite Earl Scruggs. No, but he's got a good smirk. I'm hearing like a word. Every <laughs> Her greatest in there somewhere. I really want right. to look up the lyrics. Well, that's Uncle Penn. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look up well, the lyrics. Whenever you're doing this, you're not listening. So I have to sit here and wait. What's the song you... called again? Uncle Pen. 
old people would come from far away dance all night to the break of day when the caller would holler do si do they knew uncle pam was ready to go okay <laughs> am i bluegrass yet sure you need some strings Okay. You done with Uncle Ben? I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Forever. Bill is a relentless performer throughout his career, most of the time playing hundreds of shows in a year. But he was sidelined in 1953 for a few months after a bad car accident when he was hit by a drunk driver. Oof. In 1954, Elvis did a version of Blue Moon of Kentucky at the Grand Ole Opry, but it was arranged really differently than Bill's old version. It was slower. I don't know if it was. Because Blue Moon of Kentucky was. was pretty slow. I I bet you if Elvis did it, it was slower. Elvis was known for fast. He was rock. No, but he was also like, not croony, but like croony. Yeah, we'll look it up and we'll see. Elvis Blue Moon of Kentucky. Blue Moon. Oh. Blue Moon. Never mind. Faster. Blue Moon. Keep shining bright. Blue Moon. Keep on shining bright. She's gonna bring the back of my baby tonight. Blue Moon. Blue Verb is just great. Keep shining bright. I said, Blue Moon. I've got to get it. Keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gold and let me blue. I like it better. So did America, General. Look at his lips. It's like he didn't even need lip filler. Yep, that's what I'm thinking about when I see Elvis. (laughs) But apparently, uh, after Elvis did that version, he apologized to Bill for changing the song up so much. But Bill would later perform Elvis's arrangement of the song at his own shows. So I don't think Bill cared all that much. Elvis just seems like a nice dude. Yeah. He, he seems, seems considerate. He seems like a people pleaser. Like he seems like he wants everyone to love him. So he like. Yeah, that's probably it. He like. Because I remember a story where he went to Jerry Lee Lewis and he was like freaking out that people were upset with him. And Jerry Lee's like. That's my entire life, man. No one ever likes me. I don't know what you're freaking out about. Like, who cares? Just do your thing. The early 1950s were a golden age for Bill. He was performing everywhere, selling records, having a grand old time. But the end of the 50s was a sharp decline. The explosion of rock and roll kind of dampened everything else in music at that point. People wanted to hear the new rockabilly of Elvis, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash. Bill was old school. Bill did appear on the charts again for the first time in a decade in 1957, but really his star wasn't his star was all but completely eclipsed by his old bandmates Earl Scruggs and Lester Flats. Bill wasn't doing himself any favors though. He was notoriously stubborn and hard to work with. Several band members passed through his ranks because of his temperament and his nitpicking their playing. <laughs> That's so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> He almost refused to grant interviews and wouldn't perform on television, which wasn't great. Since Why I, would he not do that? I don't know. I don't. I didn't see his reasoning behind it. But like, bad decision because that's how hits were made. Yeah. At this point. Like that's how you got out there. He even canceled a show at the legendary Carnegie Hall because he thought the producer of the show was a communist. 
That'll show them. Well. (laughs) All right. But the early 60s started to turn his career around a little bit. The folk revival started to sweep through the country, and his music found new life. They started to associate his music with folk instead of the country and western it normally was considered. This was also when the term bluegrass started to appear to describe what they were doing, and in 1965, bluegrass festivals sprung up to give new life to this genre. Do you remember bluegrass festivals? We talked about them last week. Yeah, everyone comes and plays bluegrass. (laughs) Yes. And since it was like such a niche genre, they could have like pretty much every bluegrass act playing at the same little weekend show. Bonnaroo just for bluegrass. Yeah. Bill got himself a new manager who booked him at festivals across the country, normally on college campuses where the folk revival was in full swing. He even had his own festival that he started. As bluegrass became a solidified and nationally known thing in its own right, Bill took on a status as the patriarch of a music genre. And just kind of like knowing Bill's personality, I'm sure he loved having that title. Yeah. He seemed a little bit full of himself at the end. Untouchable, if he's like that. Yeah. Bill continued to tour relentlessly through the 70s and showed no signs of stopping until he was diagnosed with cancer in 1981. What kind? I don't know. Mm. He underwent successful treatment and was back on the road full-time until he was once again sidelined with double coronary bypass in 1991. Oof. After he recovered from that surgery, he kept performing and hosting weekly at the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> Good God. Do you want to see... Do what a, you love. ...an older Bill Monroe? Yeah. He's playing with a special guest. Ooh, who's the special guest? We'll Is it a dog? <gasps> Dolly! I figured you'd like this one. God, she's amazing. Look at her. Oh my god, she's so beautiful. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Shine. Will Flat, I mean. There we go. We'll also probably miss 70 with this point. Oh my god, she's so cute. He's that old after playing over a hundred shows a year for most of his life. His, his, his voice has taken some damage. Oh! so straight-laced and, like, serious. I love how this guy's hat, like, sits on the very, very tip-top of his head. (laughs) No! More Dolly! Dolly. More Dolly! I think Dolly's in it much more. I want to see her dance. Bill Monroe. Oh. (laughs) Dolly. Passed away 
on March 15th, 1996. Four oh, I days. was I was one year old. Yep, that was four days before his 85th birthday. Wow. Bill had a massive impact on country and American music. He is one of only five artists who's honored in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, because I mean, Why? a lot a lot of that early country music was very like inspired. Especially people like Elvis and like the guys who grew up in the rural South. Yeah, like but it, he like actively avoided that. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess he played Elvis's version of but, one of his songs. Yeah, it still but doesn't like, matter. Like it's the Hall of Fame is the stuff that like influenced it and what it was born out of. So okay. like that doesn't really like. There's a lot of people in it who like Robert Johnson didn't even know what rock music was, and he's in there because his music impacted it and influenced it so much. Interesting. He also has a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and several other awards. That's awesome. It is widely understood that there would be no bluegrass without Bill Monroe, but he often took his role as father and caretaker of bluegrass a little too seriously. He would be known to bully other bluegrass artists who weren't performing up to his standards and say they had no part in bluegrass. If he said something mean to Dolly, I swear to God. I don't think so, because I don't think Dolly was trying to be bluegrass. (laughs) And I think at that point he was probably like, I don't care. Like, I'm just, I'm here at the Grand Ole Opry. I'm doing what I want. Who cares? Maybe. I don't know if he's that type of person. Over 150 different musicians played in the Bluegrass Boys during the 60 years of his career. 150? Yep. He had a knack for finding young talent and treating his band as a sort of apprenticeship, sending out talented Bluegrass musicians all over the place. That's cool. Yeah, so he would find people and just kind of like teach them how to play bluegrass and then they would go out and do their own bluegrass thing. Like kind of Earl Scruggs was the prototype of that. Well, he definitely seems like he deserves a patriarch title if that's the case. Yeah. Just sucks that he was such a such a douche about Asshole it. Asshole dad? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he probably wasn't terrible. Like he, With he, unattainable standards? Yeah, he like... I don't want to paint the picture of him being like this ruthless, terrible, but like he probably was just strict and like yeah. serious about his music and he wanted it to be perfect. So if it wasn't, he, which a lot of musicians were like that, like that is pretty common. Yeah. That's how uh, a long time ago we did a bonus episode on John Philip Sousa, the American March King. And he was like that too. Yeah. Like he was, but people said he was lovely and a great guy, but he was like, su- he like it had to be perfect. Ricky Skaggs, who is probably the best-known modern bluegrass performer, said about Bill, quote, I think Bill Monroe's importance to American music is as important as someone like Robert Johnson was to blues or Louis Armstrong. Nice. He was so influential, I think he's probably the only musician that had a whole style of music named after his band, which I think is true. I I can't think of any other people who had, like, the music named after them. That's true. All right, well, that's Bill Monroe. All right, I like him. Yeah, I think he's. I think he deserves the title of the Bluegrass King. I just don't care about bluegrass, so. I like it better than some things. <laughs> it's one of my least favorite styles of music. All right, well, that kind of wraps up this little portion. Because next episode, when we finally get around to it, we're launching into the Rat Pack. Oh, sorry, that's probably not good. That's fine. And we're doing, uh, I think, four episodes on the Rat Pack and then a bonus episode 
on Nat King Cole. <gasps> and then we're going to like pick the story back up in like the 60s ish. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's going to be fun. I'm so excited. I need to write more. I am behind. I only I have three more written out. I guess you can take the next week and a half yeah. or so to write us some more episodes. We've done 41 episodes. That's crazy. Wow. A lot. Well, more than that. Yeah. Because that doesn't include the bonus episodes. You don't number the bonus ones? No, because like I do it, epi- like last week was episode 40, Bluegrass. This is 41, Bill Monroe. Okay. So like the bonus episodes aren't one of the numbers. They're bonus episodes. So oh. they're not numbered. Because like I want to keep the numbers like in line with the story of American music. Sometimes the bonus episodes are a little bit of fillers. Okay. I did not realize that's how it yep. was structured. Like Elvis was not numbered. He was a bonus. Elvis doesn't deserve a, a time timeline in American music history. Bonuses are kind of, <laughs> they're weird because some of them, like John Philip Sousa or Al Jolson, those are the ones where it's like, I don't know where to put them. <laughs> like, yeah. Like they're kind of everywhere. Elvis was like, I wanted to talk about, uh, I want to talk about Chuck Berry for rock, but I have to talk about Elvis. So I got to put him somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that. And also, that's how Bing Crosby was. Like, I had to talk about Bing, but I wanted to talk about someone else for careers. So, all right. Well, join us whenever for the Rat Pack. Bye. We'll post about it on Twitter so you can know when it's coming. Bye. 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 Bye.